Welcome everyone to a new uh, episode of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. Uh, this week our guest is Hannah Bost, who's Ad Astra Fellow and Assistant Professor at University College Dublin. Uh, and she will be talking about her book, Hydrofictions, Water, Power and Politics in Israeli and Palestinian Literature, which came out with, uh, which came out with Edinburgh University Press in 2020. So I will just leave it over to you, Hannah. Hey, thanks. Um, I'm going to just share some. Hey, um, so th thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here today to talk about my book and to hear what kinds of things you might have to, you might want to ask about it. Um, I'm still slightly surprised that the book came out at all. Um, as with many, well, like many early career academics, I've had a few years of precarious employment. So um, it's very nice that this is finally out. Um, so this project started out as a PhD thesis co-supervised between English at York in the UK and geography at Sheffield um, as part of a, a research network about hydropolitics. Um, so the book came from the start out of the context of thinking about the relationships between, um, between the social sciences and between humanities work on water. Um, and how they fit together. And I think that kind of interdisciplinary work is really essential to, to working on water because water intersects with our lives in so many ways. So biophysical, cultural, religious, geopolitical, and a hundred more. Um, so I'm gonna start by setting the scene a little bit and talking about how we typically think about water in Israel-Palestine. Um, so, the best known aspect of water in Israel-Palestine is that it's the archetypal water war, uh, water war in inverted commas. Um, so past, present and possible future conflicts in the region are regularly framed by academics, politicians and the media as motivated by the need to secure scarce resources. Um, so we have this idea from um, Ismail Saragaldin, former World Bank Vice President, um, saying that many of the wars of this century were about oil, but the wars of the next century will be over water. Um, of course, the reality in Israel-Palestine and in other conflicts presented as water wars is um, a bit more complicated. But even while Israel is described as vulnerable to water wars, it's also often lauded for having solved its water crisis and even having a water surplus because of um, desalination technology, drip irrigation and wastewater recycling. Um, it's promoted by the, by the government, um, by tech companies and the international press as the startup nation, as in one of the books on the slide, um, and as, as the Silicon Valley of water technology. So in, in another way, Israel seems to tell us that we can just circumvent the problem of there not being enough water. That is, if we have the money. And of course, as in one of these headlines on the slide, Israel might be bringing its water miracle to California but it's not bringing it to its neighbors, the Palestinians. Um, so another well-known part of uh, water in Israel-Palestine is Palestine's inadequate water supplies. So this graphic from Visualizing Palestine on the right of the, the screen is slightly out of date. Um, now 97% of water in Gaza um, is, is unsuitable for human consumption, um, contaminated by fertilizers, salt water and sewage. The UN actually declared in 2012 that lack of clean water would render Gaza unlivable by 2020. But of course, Gazans still have to live there. Um, and Gaza's lack of reliable water and electricity supplies have left it particularly vulnerable to this year's coronavirus pandemic. 
And the quote on the left of the slide um, gives a bit more of a sense of the day-to-day -day difficulties presented to Palestinians um, by this lack of access to water. Um, but another part of the story um, that I try and talk a bit about in the book is that Palestinians are active agents in resisting this phenomenon. So the Palestinian struggle for water justice is part of a growing global movement around the world, often led by black and indigenous communities, um, that often makes gestures of transnational solidarity, as in this banner from um, a protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline led by the Standing Rock Sioux. Um, so to try and sum up this um, broader context, we might say that if Israel has become the saviour of the water intensive lifestyles of the world's wealthiest countries, Palestine plays a similarly important role as one of the emblematic movements for water justice. Um, so we often think about Israel-Palestine as having these objective hydrological facts that are just beyond dispute. Um, so it's a water scarce region where shortages are inevitable and conflicts are just going to happen over, um, over this lack of water. And this has kind of led people to thinking about water in Israel-Palestine as just a matter for engineers, for scientists, for politicians, for these kinds of technical managerial calculations. Um, it's something that can be parceled out um, in, in these kinds of technical ways. But I try and put forward a different argument in the book. Um, which is that how we imagine water is crucial to how we manage it um, and that critics, novelists and poets um, have important things to say. So reading key moments in Israeli and Palestinian history, as I do in the book, from a literary perspective, draws attention to practices that are often taken for granted. Um, and it tells us about hydropolitics shapes Israeli and Palestinian lives over time. Um, giving a sense of what uh, Terje Tvet and Terje Ostergaard call our life worlds or our worlds of water. Um, and I think, or I try and argue in the book, that Israel-Palestine has become a site at which 21st century anxieties and hopes about our water supply coalesce. Um, and that reading water in Israel and Palestine is of wider importance to how we think about the politics of water and of water crisis in the present. Um, so part of the reason that I want to bring literature into the picture is, um, is because of the role of narrative in constructing ideas of hydropolitical reality. So this idea of water wars, of water scarcity, might seem an obvious fact of nature in the Middle East, um, but as this graphic also from Visualising Palestine points out, Ramallah has a higher annual rainfall than London, um, and Jerusalem has higher annual rainfall than Berlin. So our sense of Israel-Palestine as a naturally arid environment and as a home of um, inevitable water wars is just one narrative we can tell about this place. Um, and it's a narrative that has political implications. So it plays into an orientalist and environmentally deterministic worldview um, that, as Jan Selby points out, um, it, it produces this idea of barren deserts of dangerous Arab dictators that reaffirms the need for Israel to control water resources in the region um, and that undermines Palestinian claims for resource sovereignty. So turning to literature can help us to see that different narratives about water have been told in Israel-Palestine over time. Um, and that the the most important factor in whether water is being constructed as scarce or abundant is dominant forms of political power. Um, so I draw quite a bit in thinking about that on the work of science and technology studies scholar Sama Alatutz, who writes that water scarcity is not a fixed object, nor are relations of power that sustain it. Um, 
so Palestine's water inequalities might be really severe, but they don't need to be permanent. Um, so in the book, I'm kind of trying to show how literature can be an ally of, um, of political ecology um, in, in its task, as Alex Loftus writes, of moving from a critique of existing policy towards a sense of possible alternative worlds built on radically different social and natural ties. I think literature does a really good job of opening space for imagining how things might be otherwise and thinking about how we might remake the world in a more just way. Um, and of course, this is a, a really important task of the environmental humanities as well. Um, so I'm going to say a little bit more about this concept of hydrofictions. Um, so I use this term in my title um, and propose a reading of Israeli and Palestinian literature as hydrofiction, um, a category that I suggest might be a new literary critical tool with a wider application. Um, so in using this term, I ask what literary texts might tell us about what geographers call hydrosocial relations, or the ways that water isn't just acted on by humans, um, but in the words of Jamie Linton and Jessica Buds, it is both shaped by and shapes social relations, structures and subjectivities. Um, so there are a few possible different ways we might unpack the term hydrofiction. One is that it just means any literature that has anything to say about humans and water. Um, sorry, that little <laughs> the moving thing is annoying me. I'm going to just move on to the next slide. OK, <laughs> you get the idea. Um, so, there are, yeah, there are a few different ways we might think about hydrofiction. One is it's just any literature that says something about water. It's an extremely broad idea of the term. Um, so in some sense, we might read any literature as hydrofiction. Every action in literature seems to be ultimately premised on the availability of water. Um, the characters in a book wouldn't be able to exist without it, even if we're not constantly seeing people drinking glasses of water or flushing the toilet. Um, and the circulation of literature itself, especially as a printed book, depends on the use and the contamination of water. Um, so Nancy Langston recently um, published a book about um, uh, water contamination and paper mills, uh, her book Sustaining Lake Superior. So if you're interested in that, um, I'd seek out her book. Um, but as you'll have seen from the slide that I've put up, um, in the book I try and narrow down the meaning of hydrofiction in the hope of giving it a sharper critical purchase. I suggest that it's a, um, that it's a literary category for our era of hydro-modernity, so roughly the late 19th century onwards in which vast hydraulic engineering schemes, including dams, regularized rivers, and drinking water infrastructures have been used around the world to conquer non-human nature and power nations into the modern era with some quite mixed consequences. Hydro-modernist thinking persists in responses to climate change that see the answers only as uh, the next technical fix, so desalination, for instance. So hydrofiction is work um, that registers or intervenes in the processes of hydromodernity in a substantive way, or at least that's what I try and suggest in the book. Um, so one of the people that I was influenced by when I was coming up with this um, notion was Eric Swingerdow, um, who's a, a political ecologist. Um, so he has this book, uh, Liquid Power, which came out in 2015. Um, and he talks about the role of environmental imaginaries, visions and dreams uh, quite evocatively in re remaking Spain in the 20th century. 
Um, and he often mentions Spanish literature um, and how it produced particular ideas of water um, and the Spanish natural environment. Um, but these are kind of tantalizing because he doesn't really go into literature in that much um, depth because he's a geographer, so he's got different goals. Um, but I see my approach as, as a kind of counterpart to what he's doing from a more literary perspective. Um, and then there's another obvious context that the book deliberately evokes, which is this idea of petrifiction and petrocriticism, which has been quite a popular area of um, study in the past five years or so. Um, so petrocriticism petro reads the resource of oil in literature and culture as part of what's called the energy humanities. Um, and in the book, I ask what it might mean to read the resource of water in literature through taking Israeli and Palestinian writing as a test case. Um, so the last thing on this uh, term, apologies for the silly gift, but I sort of, I have a collection of them that I like to use. Um, I've reflected on the way that I just define this term since writing the book. I'm not totally sure it's the best way to do it. Um, there seem to be a few problems with taking the starting point for hydrofiction as these massive interventions into the water cycle that are characteristic of what some people have called modernity's hydraulic mission. Um, it seems to define the subject of analysis in relation to disruptive events rather than to longer continuous histories of living with water. Um, so in the context of Palestine, it meant that I started from the, the beginning of um, Zionist settlement in the late 19th and early 20th century rather than the longer history of Palestinian and, and Ottoman water use in the region. Um, and I think a project that began earlier would look quite different to the one I ended up producing. Um, so if anyone wants to write that, I'd like to read it. Um, but I hope that the book will prompt some responses and some, maybe some pushback that will help us to unpack the strengths and weaknesses of that term. Um, and I'm gonna just, I'm gonna end by, um, just giving a bit more of a sense of the, an overview of the book. So I structured it according to different bodies of water kind of loosely defined um, in Israel, Palestine um, and how, how they were managed, how people have thought about them over the 20th and 21st century. Um, so I start with the River Jordan and, and then the Jezreel and Hula Valleys. So these, these are swamps that were drained um, in the early 20th century and in the mid 20th century. Um, I then moved closer to the present, thinking about the role of the Mediterranean Sea in um, Israeli identity in more recent decades uh, as a sort of repositioning of Israel from the kind of early 20th century, mid 20th century idea of it as a kind of socialist agricultural um, producer um, to a sort of sun, sea and sand tourist destination. <laughs> um, and then in the last chapter, I look um, I move much closer to the present, thinking about the role of infrastructural warfare um, in, um, in wars of the past 20th century. So Operation Defensive Shields, um, Operation Castled. Um, yeah, so I sort of took this approach because it seemed the most useful for people who might be picking up the book. Um, and looking at literature through the framework of the nation also seemed to look at it also led to looking at particular places and how they become invested with national sentiment. Um, 
But at the same time, this approach made it a bit harder for me to find space to bring in the less geographically rooted and more metaphorical representations of water I came across in my research. But I'm not totally sure it was the best way to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm doing a little bit more work um, at the moment on those sort of metaphorical ideas and hopefully that, that's going to come out in a, a handbook about the environmental humanities that some colleagues are editing at UCD. So that's probably everything. Um, I will stop sharing my uh, slides and thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Hannah. That was uh, great to get an overview of your concept, in particular, this hydrofictions. Um, because what, what I thought about um, was we had a talk earlier um, from Daniel McFarlane about um, Niagara Falls and fixing Niagara Falls um, and how that basically creates a fiction of Niagara Falls. So the, the interventions in themselves in order to keep the thing called Niagara Falls create a thing called Niagara Falls, right? So, so it's this recursive loop of fiction. Um, so I was wondering if there were kind of similar situations that you saw in your cases about that, where the thing that you make becomes the thing you were supposed to have already had um, in that sense. Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm really excited to read Daniel McFarlane's book. Um, I think I'm writing a bit about um, Niagara Falls in the uh, in the new project. So um, I think it will be really, really useful. Um, the, the environment in Israel-Palestine that I think is probably, that relates um, most closely to what you've just said is um, the draining, draining of the swamps and the sort of production of a particular environment um, that, that was supposed to be there, um, but it wasn't because, um, because Palestine was seen as, as a degraded landscape that had been not looked after. Um, so from the kind of land of the like biblical milk and honey uh, flowing with water, uh, the, the kind of um, the, the Jordan uh, as sort of, um, sort of fertilizing the land, that, that was seen as um, something that had, that had been neglected by Palestine's Arab inhabitants. Um, and something that could only be restored um, through reuniting the Jewish people with the land of Palestine. Um, so that was something that was meant to be there, um, but actually took quite a lot of work to, to create. And those efforts to create those landscapes sometimes ended in environmental disaster. Um, so the Hula, Hula Swamp, the Hula Valley ended up having to be partially reflooded. Um, because there was, um, because the environment was drained to produce like agricultural land um, for farming, um, but it ended up leading to peat under the ground, self-combusting. Self so there were these kinds of fires under the ground and um, just it, it didn't work what it was supposed to. And um, the Society for the Protection of Nature in Israel, so Israel's big, um, uh, environmental organization was sort of founded around the time that the hula swamps were drained because people were saying this is a really bad idea <laughs> um, but it took until the the 80s 90s for um, 
I think the early 90s for partial reflooding to happen. Um, and one of the books that I write about in the in the book is a is a reflection from the late 80s on um, the relationship between these national narratives and um, and the, the swamps and how um, a kind of declining confidence in these earlier notions of Israeli national identity sort of allowed people to um, get to the point of being able to to reflood, <laughs> reflood the swamp, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and the the, uh, the whole idea that they had swamps there, I'm I'm just kind of you know floored. I uh, learned something new, um, and and thinking about, I, I was wondering then in your in your quest for literature to go with these. So did you did you start with the books? You know, an idea of oh, let me look at water in. Israeli and Palestinian literature, you read books and then you picked your cases or did you did you have like already ideas of oh I need a I need something on the Jordan and then you went and found literature how, how did that process work? I mean any project that's about a theme is is quite hard it's, it's sort of harder than doing a project about like Dickens novels of the 1860s or the, I <laughs> that, that kind of thing you know rather than something that's more contained um I just had to read a lot of books <laughs> and hope that I came across something that was relevant to my theme um uh, and most the, more of the books that I ended up writing about were from the last 30 years because I think those were the books where people were reflecting more explicitly on environmentalism um, but a lot of it was was sort of trial and error and just seeing what I could find. Great I have Nicole has a question so I will ask Nicole Seymour. Okay. Hi um, congrats on the book Hannah very excited for you um, sort of a follow-up question in the literature I was wondering if you could give us like an example or two of specific texts you're talking about and maybe sort of like how you've thought or if you've thought about, um, you know, like form and style, for example, like, you know, poetry about these these things functioning differently than, than memoir, you know, fill in the blank. But yeah, just a big question. Yeah, thanks. That, that's, that's a really helpful question. Um, and uh, I suppose the book that I just mentioned about the swamps, um, so Maya Shalev's The Blue Mountain, published in 1988, um, is a magical realist novel. Um, so magical realism, obviously, is a kind of genre that's often used for um, reflections on national history, on um, kind of violence that might have been suppressed in um, dominant narratives. Um, and, and he uses magical realism for thinking about um, how the environment had been damaged, but also thinking about um, Palestinian histories that have been erased through this re recreation of um, Palestine's landscape. Um, so that's that's one example. Um, ooh, I'm just getting distracted by a question popping up. Um, I haven't. I ooh, in one of my slides as well. I can show you a um, a poem. Uh, did, can you? Can you see that? I think it takes a bit longer to load, so I just leave it like that. Um, no, I don't think it's on sharing. Oh no, it's not sharing. Okay. 
You um, can read it to us, of course. I can read, yeah, maybe yeah, I'll please. read you a poem. Please, read us a poem. <laughs> Okay, so this is Mahmoud Darwish's A River Dies of Thirst, and it's quite short. Um, a river was here and it had two banks and a heavenly mother who nursed it on drops from the clouds. A small river moving slowly, descending from the mountain peaks, visiting villages and tents like a charming, lively guest, bringing oleander trees and date palms to the valley and laughing to the nocturnal revelers on its banks. Drink the milk of the clouds and water the horses and fly to Jerusalem and Damascus. Sometimes it sang heroically, at others passionately. It was a river with two banks and a heavenly mother who nursed it on drops from the clouds. But they kidnapped its mother, so it ran short of water and died slowly at first. Um, so that's by Mahmoud Darwish, who's um, often described as Palestine's national poet. Um, some of you probably just made everyone disappear. Um, so you, if you've heard of, if you know anything about Palestinian poetry, you've probably heard of Mami Dawish. He's, he's a big deal. Um, and I mean, in the book, I kind of wrote about this in relation to narratives of um, in the environmental Nakba. So the idea that um, the expulsion of Palestinians led to uh, environmental decline um, because Palestinians were no longer uh, managing the environment and caring for it in the ways that they uh, um, understood as necessary to its survival and to their survival. Um, and obviously the kind of familial um, metaphor is, is really um, powerful and tragic. Um, but, it, but it's also kind of in line with the ways that ideas of children, um, the ways that those ideas get used in environmental narratives more, more broadly, as in Nicole, of course, you've talked about. Um, I mean, this poem, I think, is quite interesting because it's not necessarily obvious that it is about the Jordan. Um, but you can kind of, uh, if you if you know a bit about the environment and, of course, about Palestine and the importance of the Jordan to Palestinians, you, you can kind of pick out details that suggest that he might be referring to the Jordan. So. Um, that it's a fairly small river, that it descends um, from um, the hills in, uh, from the Golan Heights in the north of Israel and kind of in Syrian territory as well. Um, and descending as well. Um, so in Hebrew, uh, the, the name for the Jordan is Hayarden, which means uh, descender. So um, he, he's kind of alluding, and this is in the Arabic as well. I can't remember what the Arabic word is, but um, he's alluding to the idea of the Jordan when he says descending. Uh, yeah, so there's a little sample. Great, and I think that kind of gets to Eric had a, a question about that, about an example um, from the Palestinian side. So he says, yes, that that was exactly what he was looking for. Um, and I was wondering that it related to that, do you find that the um, Israeli writers and Palestinian writers have, that they both use nationalism in their hydrofictions or their hydrofictions are nationalist or are they qualitatively different in some ways? Um. Yeah, I suppose I'm looking at texts from some, the, the contemporary texts that I look at are basically all quite critical of, of nationalism. Um, that 
the Israeli texts. So the, the books that I pay the most attention to are the one I mentioned before by Meir Shalev and also a book by Amos Oz, um, who's like Darwish's Palestine's national writer, Oz is often talked about as Israel's national novelist. Um, and they're, they're both writing from a sort of liberal Zionist perspective. So they're, they're critical of Israeli nationalism, but, but they're not, um, but they're, they've kind of got a certain political viewpoint as well. Um, I mean, there are, there are more explicitly nationalist texts that I look at that are the, the earlier texts. Um, so one of, one of the strangest books that I came across in, in writing this book was um, Theodore Herzl's 1902 utopian novel, Alt's New Land. So Herzl is um, the founder of political Zionism, um, who was, was really well known around the end of the 19th century, start of the 20th century. But it's not that well known that he actually that he wrote that he was a utopian novelist, and he has it's just this bizarre book um, where these um, sort of disillusioned European Jews go on a tour of a Jewish state that has been created in Palestine. Um, and I suppose it's not nationalist because Israel doesn't exist yet, um, but it's very it's sort of very celebratory about um, the the success of Jewish immigrants in like redeeming the landscape and at one point their their tour guide who's this kind of um like intellectual but also kind of macho and tough uh like professional man um describes he, he says the true creators of the old new land were the hydraulic engineers um, and so, so the most important thing in, in redeeming the land, um, as Herzl imagined it at the start of the 20th century, was um, managing its water. So it's it's not nationalist because it doesn't quite <laughs> because it doesn't quite fit the timeline, um, but it's very sort of banging banging a particular drum. Yeah, and and that follows really or a question from Moritz um, follows up with that, which is, are there people from outside um, the Israeli-Palestinian uh, setting who, who come there and then write about it? Um, so do you run across or have you run across works that celebrate that region's waterworks and policies like people from the Soviet Union coming or people from Europe, from elsewhere in Europe, coming and then they write about a hydro fiction. Um, that's a good question. You would think that people would be doing that. <laughs> um, I mean, there were various American experts who were involved in drawing up plans for Palestine's water management. Um, who, uh, who who went there and thought a lot about water in Palestine and then uh, came up with an idea for, well, the, the Loudermilk plan. So Walter Clay Loudermilk, he was involved in the Tennessee Valley Authority projects. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure I have an answer to that. <laughs> but 
I should have a think about what uh, about other people's sort of narratives. I mean, I suppose Herzl's one is of he's imagining of someone else going there. And um, Shimon Peres wrote, um, so the former Israeli president wrote another kind of imagined visit of a tourist to Israel, which is a sort of recreation of Herzl's uh, early 20th century tour. Um, where I think I think Ben Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, takes someone. On. It's it's another it's another kind of strange mind bending time travel uh, travelogue. Um, but yeah, I'm less less sure of external visitors going there and what what they might have said about it. Sorry, that's not a very I satisfying that's... answer. No, that, and that's interesting, too, to think about the ways in which these ideas and, and fictions about what you can and can't do to water might travel, uh, too. I mean, mentioning like the TVA and, you know, so big ideas of, of managing water are global in many senses. Um, Fernando, you had a question. Yeah, and it, it in some way connects to Maudis' question, too. So I was fascinating, uh, fascinated by the beginning when we compared uh, to, to the Silicon Valley discussion. So basically water became this focus of innovation, right? Gonna find a, a, a technical quick fix as a solution to that. Uh, and then if you draw in then basically history of technology, looking at how, how this kind of work, this, this technology booster reason has been talked about. So in the field of history of technology, there's been this big shift from looking at the innovators, the, the people with uh, the, the fancy inventions to the maintainers, the people who do the, in a way, the, the non-sexy, the long-term, the, well, the waterworks engineers uh, and so on. So do you see these themes come up in the literature? I mean, you have an example, you read a poem, which is more about both in a way appreciating the, the river as it was there and lamenting the things that we had done with it. But do you, do you have examples of other literature that talks about maintaining the river in this sense, uh, both, I mean, materially, but also politically. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose, I, I guess you could think about the sort of Kibbutz novels and, and people, um, things like Amos Oz's short stories, um, where, where people are managing water and where they're draining the swamps. Um, so they're kind of managing the environment, but, but that's more about creating the environment than it is about the sort of day-to-day -day maintenance. So there is a novel um, by the Israeli-Palestinian writer, Sami Mikhail, uh, called Mayim Noshkim Lamayim, called, um, which is like water kissing water, um, which is about a, a water engineer um, and so M Mikhail was was a was a hydraulic engineer, um, and from what I understand, it is about just his life of maintaining water infrastructure. But it's not available in translation, and my Hebrew is is getting better, but it's not good enough to read the book. Um, but I suppose the fact that that isn't translated also tells us something interesting, which is that that. Well, it tells us interesting things about a few uh, areas of Israeli literature that, that people don't necessarily want to read the narrative of someone who, who's kind of in between. So Israeli-Palestinian authors rather than Israeli and Palestinian. Um, but that the, the work of maintenance is maybe seen as a bit boring. 
um, rather than something that fits into these kind of ideas of like the Kaburts, of like building the land, of um, settlements and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there's one novel, but only if you your Hebrew is um, is good enough to read it. All right, so we have a question from Jens here. He says, you know, water is a great vector to come to understand Palestinian Israel as a single geographical unit. And that's true. So you're talking about water um, and, and therefore you can put them together because they're in the same watershed, right? Um, and so it's been dissected and split up by colonial dynamics. And that leads to this question then. So when reading your literary works, is there a specific theoretical framework you employ to address the verticality of power? So you're sticking them together, Israel and Palestine then into this, you know, geography being the mm -hmm. same, yet power-wise they aren't. Um, so how do you deal with that? Yeah, I suppose that's, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose someone whose work was really influential for me when thinking about power in Israel-Palestine in terms of water was um, Jan Salbi. Um, in fact, I was just consulting his book <laughs> beforehand. Um, so his, his book was so useful to me that I sort of put a reference to it in um, my title. So The Water and Water Power and Politics uh, is a reference to his book. Um, and power, power is, is so important when thinking about this because of those ways that it just gets, you know, the way that we might ordinarily talk about water or resource shortages in a kind of Malthusian framework as like, well, there just isn't, isn't enough. Um, yeah, so, and if we think about it in terms of power, then we have to think about the, the solution being more equal control, equal access to the water of the region. Um, I don't know if I have a specific theoretical framework, but people like Jan Salbi, Mark Zetoun, um, Tony Allen, those people's work, uh, writing in a geography and a political ecology context was helpful when I was approaching the topic. Well, speaking of, of power, then um, we'll have a question from Jordan Savage um, about the role of workers. So how do workers with water um, factor into your story? So um, the comment here is I'm thinking about the U.S. context, which mm -hmm. is Jordan's area and Muriel uh, Rukeyser's poetry in which hydroelectric power is generated by workers who die do doing the work. Right. So you, you give everything in these unequal power relations. Um, so in, in mentioning nationalisms, then, but are there other intersections like this that, that are related to workers and, and power? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, and yeah, since I read um, Stacey Alemo's writing about Muriel Rukeza, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong. Um, I wanted to, to, to read her poetry because it really sounds like something that I, that I, ought, that I ought to read. Um, so workers with water, I mean, I suppose as with the Salmi Mikhail novel, I don't think there are really that many 
workers in the books, uh, apart from the kind of like Kvartsniks. Um, I mean, one of the um, one of the books that I talk about towards the end in the chapter about infrastructure is kind of about people lacking the skills to deal with water and to to, to fix infrastructure. Um, and how that leads to a massive disaster. Um, so Sayed Kashua, uh, his book Let It Be Morning, published in 2004, um, came, it came out two years after uh, Operation Defensive Shield, um, when a lot of Palestinian water infrastructure was destroyed or rendered useless through um, Israeli bombing. Um, and it's, uh, the book is centered on a siege of an Israeli-Palestinian community in um, the, the Triangle in sort of central northern Israel. Um, and their electricity gets cut off and then all of their water gets cut off. And there's a lot of discussion and kind of panic in the book that, about how they don't know what to do because they're so reliant on their houses just sort of working as expected and everything being in the background um, that they just they, they can't figure out what to do when the sort of sewage starts coming up through the stinks or um, yeah when they can't get water in the supermarket so um, <laughs> that's again not quite answered the question um, I suppose his novel Kashira's novel is, is kind of thinking about um, the sort of dependence that we have on, on everything working and on not directly working with water ourselves. I suppose a lot of it is kind of out of our out of our control and dealt with by by experts rather than everyday people, and that's good and bad. Exactly. So it becomes this. Uh, you, yeah, you pointed out you expect it to work, right? And so then when it doesn't work, then therein lies the the, the problem. Um, we had a question um, from Katrina um, about literary representations of rivers, say, compared to oceans. So thinking about hydrofictions, are there in fact freshwater hydrofictions and saltwater hydrofictions that might operate or do different kinds of things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose the, right, the, there is there's a kind of collection of metaphors that, that we always use for thinking about water and that, that sort of seems to come up in lots of different contexts. I mean, water in time, water in history, those kinds of things come up in water, uh, thinking about rivers or thinking about the sea. Um, I, think, I think in representations of rivers, we often get a sense of... Um, at least in some of the texts that I've read, sort of national pasts and presents. So this, this sort of sense of the nation moving forward through time. Um, so a sort of connection with history and a sort of driving forward into the future that I don't think we necessarily get when thinking about the sea. I mean, thinking about the sea is often about like the sea as, as an archive. So Astridia Neumannis sort of talks about those kinds of ideas in relation to the sea. Um, and obviously at sea, people are doing things like migrating, which they're not necessarily doing across rivers. Um, 
uh, and I mean, in the books that in the book that I write about in the in my book about the sea, there's more about this almost the sea as a kind of an anti-national space. So the the sea in um, the book that I've written about in the book, uh, Amos Oz is the same sea, published in 1999. Um, it's it's about the sea as looking forward to it, a new kind of Israel that isn't kind of um, invested in the sort of nationalistic discourses of the land. It's about looking across the Mediterranean to Europe and to sort of smoothing things out to kind of peacemaking um, and to sort of sitting on the beach. So, so it kind of has different connotations to um, the more nationalistic connotations of, of rivers. I mean, there's a book by uh, um, an art historian called Tricia Cusack about national riverscapes that I drew quite drew on quite a bit when writing the, the Jordan chapter, um, which uh, might might be useful thinking more about uh, freshwater hydrofiction. So, um, what do you have planned next? Are you continuing work on uh, water? Are you continuing work on Israeli? Palestinian literature, you know, how are you moving to a, a next project? Yeah, th thanks for asking that. Um, so the, the next project is Water Crisis and World Literature. Um, so it's sort of, it's trying to extend from the Israel-Palestine context to thinking a bit more comparatively across other national literatures. Um, so when I was writing the book, um, I was really interested in the ways that other experts like Walter Clay Loudermilk from the US kind of was involved in planning for um, Israeli water policy. And it, it seems it seemed like there were so many of these connections between different places. Um, and of course, there are also connections in the, in the ways that people uh, imagine water um, and the kinds of literary styles that become popular. Um, so I wanted to think more comparatively about uh, that kind of writing um across places that had different experiences of water crisis so um the first thing that i've written for for that is a is an article about the water wars novel um because that seemed like a trope that came up quite a lot in um contemporary writing about water and literature and i don't really like those novels very much so, so it was um it was sort of something i had to get out of my system to write the more Right about the water literature that I that I prefer that I think is a bit less pessimistic and a bit more um, it has a bit more imaginative potential. Um, but but yeah, sort of taking it to other contexts, particularly Canada and South Af South Africa at the moment. And and some uh, Grinsel had also um, brought that up actually about a comparative. You know, could. Do you see the Jordan might be comparative to the Nile with there being different countries there or the Rhine or the Scheldt? Uh, so how those comparisons might work? Yeah, so um, there is, uh, there's a short story um, by uh, an, um, an author called Marsha Smilansky, who was an early, well, a first, first earlier, so kind of end of the 19th, uh, start of the 20th century um, immigrant, who was also a farmer. Um, and he wrote all these kind of propaganda stories um, that were kind of widely circulated in the diaspora. 
um, about Palestine. Um, and he has this short story uh, called Hawaja Nazar, which is um, just referring to the protagonist's name. Um, and the, the protagonist is this um, immigrant from Russia. He's just obsessed with the River Jordan. And he just talks to everyone about the River Jordan all the time. And this, this book, there's a short story published in 1910. Uh, and someone tells him that the River Jordan is actually really narrow. Uh, and he just has a kind of breakdown about it. So he goes on this quest to see the Jordan um, and then he eventually drowns in it, uh, which is a very, uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, but one of the reasons why he's so disappointed when people say that the Jordan is really narrow is because he wants it to be really big, uh, like the Volga. And he's always saying like, oh, is it like the Volga? Um, I mean, I, I've not seen the Volga, so I can't, I can't compare. Um, but but he has this particular idea of what a national river is like and what that means for an idea of the nation, but also, um, at least in my interpretation, of um, the of national water resources that the nation needs for a secure future, which is something that um, Jewish immigrants in Palestine and the Zionist movement were, were trying to accomplish at, at that point. So in that story, the, there's a lot about um, there's a lot of comparisons between the Jordan and other rivers. All right, so it doesn't look like we have any more questions waiting. So, I mean, we're getting close to our time, so we'll wrap up. Um, just want to thank you for uh, talking about your book, Hydrofictions, Water Power and Politics in Israeli and Palestinian Literature with Edinburgh University Press 2020. Uh, and I want to thank all the participants also for sharing great questions uh, and for being here with us. So thank you all. Thanks so much for having me.